We're going to look into God's Word, which I always enjoy doing. I think you do too. Why don't we pray for a second as we do that? So, Father, thank you so much for your Word as we consider and learn from it. It's just, it's just so rich, and we thank you for that. Thank you that you know us personally. You know what we need, and we invite you to do just that as we consider it now. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Do you have a strained or fractured relationship with someone or maybe several someones? One of the great ways to to determine this, and I learned this from Brent Trask, who was with us like three weeks ago. Um, Periodically, he would just ask, and I do this now as well. You just pray and you say, Jesus, am I avoiding anyone? You know, you see them coming in the mall and you've got a little bit of better vision than them and so you duck into a story you hadn't intended to go to. Or you pretend like you didn't see them with your peripheral vision because you just don't want to be around them. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the fracture, with that rivalry in a way that's both healthy and God-honoring. We're in the midst of this series right now called Passing the Baton, and I keep using this actual relay baton that Solo got for me to paint the image between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're asking the question through this series, what am I passing on? What are some of the really God-based, wonderful lessons we learn from these heroes of the faith in many ways, but also what are some of the things that we decidedly learn from them that, you know, will take us in a very different direction because they didn't handle it very well. This week we want to talk, and next week as well, in sort of a two-part way, we want to talk about mending fractured relationships. And the scene is all set as we continue in this story. It's kind of like a heavyweight boxing championship match between Laban and Jacob, between the father-in-law and the son-in-law. And the daughters are in the mix as well, stirring things up as well. And so the four of them are in this relationship together. And if you have your Bible, Turn with me in your device or in your hard copy to Genesis chapter 30. And we're going to be reading selected verses from the end of chapter 30 and chapter 31. As always, I encourage you to read the whole story, to get all the context. We don't have time to read it all and talk about it all. But let's continue moving through it. And there's, there's been this butting of heads between Laban, between Jacob, between Leah, between Rachel, all of this stuff is going on. And it says in verse 25 that after Rachel gave birth to Joseph, you'll recall that Leah had many children and Rachel was not able to have children and God uh, heals her and she's now able to have a child and she has a second son later in chapter 35. It says, after Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so that I can go back to my homeland. Now, one of the things I noticed right away, and we're going to pick up on this later in the story, is that this decision, it doesn't appear that God is part of the circle. 
God is not mentioned. I'm going to make another major, major life move in a, in a way that it's hard for us to understand because you just didn't pick up and do those things lightly back then. But I've decided to go, Jacob says, and it appears that God is not mentioned. And it really asks us a question at the beginning. How do you decide when it's time to go? Or where to go? Or how to go? Is God part and front and center in that process? Well, at this point in the story, Jacob has worked for Laban for just over 14 years, and he has two wives, and Leah and Rachel, they all say it's time for us to head home. But Laban, ever the opportunist, says in verse 27 and 28, then Laban said to him, if I found favor in your eyes, which he really hasn't, they've been butting heads, uh, if, if I find favor in your eyes, please stay. I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. And he says, name your wages and I will pay them. And that's another lie from Laban, by the way, which we'll discover later. And so he knows that he's been blessed because of this guy. And even though Laban would say, I'm a, a Christian as we would understand it, I'm a follower of Jehovah God, but I'm not above using divination to gain supernatural knowledge. You know what divination is, right? Divination is any attempt to seek supernatural knowledge apart from God. So I'm talking about things like the Ouija board, the horoscope, having your palm read, black magic, white magic, magic eight ball, and I could go on and on. Any attempt to get supernatural knowledge apart from God. And somebody might say to me, well, Scott, isn't that just, aren't those just a series of harmless pastimes? And I would say this to you, do not believe that lie from the evil one for one moment. Scripture universally condemns trying to gain supernatural knowledge in any way apart from God. And God does this because he loves you, because he wants to protect you, because he knows where those kinds of activities can lead, and he wants what's best for you, and he knows it's incredibly dangerous, because just think about it very, very simply. If you are not getting your supernatural knowledge from God, who are you getting it from? And I've dealt with many people over the years that have had major spiritual issues in their life and other kinds of issues in their life. And many times they started in those arenas. And so if that scares you a little bit, what you need to do, which I invite you to do, is to say, Jesus, have, has there been any of this kind of stuff in my life? Would you remind me? And if he reminds you of something, repent of it. Acknowledge that it was sinful. And ask him to forgive you and to cleanse you. And that if anything of any sort has attached, 
rebuke it in Jesus' name, asked it to be sent where Jesus would have it go, and instead have yourself, invite him to fill yourself, fill you with his spirit. And because our God, it's not a matter of that he wins. The matter is he is one. He will give you freedom as you move forward. And so Laban is playing with dynamite. But he knows that God has been blessing him simply because Jacob is around. And sometimes the thing about God that's just kind of wonderful in some ways, but a bit mystifying is that despite our best efforts to circumvent his plan, he still blesses us often because he's just that kind of a God, incredibly generous God. And so he says to Jacob, name your wages. Now Jacob is not going to play that game because we can lead in other places in the text that 10 different times Laban had changed his wages all with a goal of trying to cheat him. And so Jacob says to him, no, no, I don't want to get paid a wage. What I want to do is I want to receive a percentage of the action. And they are shepherds and they have large flocks, although Jacob really has nothing at this point. And so he says, let's negotiate a different kind of deal. And he says to him, beginning in verse 31, what shall I give you, Laban asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied. But if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark spot colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages. And my honesty will testify for me in the future whenever you check in on the wages you have paid me, any goat in my possession that's not speckled or spotted or any lamb that is not dark colored will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban, uh, you know, with his fingers crossed behind his back or whatever, because he says, let it be as you've said. That same day, Laban removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats, all that had white on them and all the dark colored lambs. And he placed them in the care of his sons. So once again, Laban cheats his son-in-law. And it is clear that these two guys have it in for each other. And it's rather funny how they cheat one another back and forth. But on the other hand, it's incredibly sad because a lot of other people get hurt in the process. And as you continue reading, if you were to read 40, 37 through 43, you'll see that, that Jacob concocts a plan to cheat him right back. Verse 30, chapter 31. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, because now Jacob is beginning to prosper as the years go by because he's been doing some things. Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all his wealth from what belonged to our father. And of course, they're only playing with a few of the facts and not with all of them, right? So they're seeing this through rose-colored glasses. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude towards him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. Now we notice 
And at this point, 20 years has gone by that Jacob has been living in that area and working for Laban. Notice now, God tells him what to do, and he does it. And there's been this intense relationship between Laban, between Jacob, between Leah, between Rachel, and it's all mixed together. It's been an incredibly heated rivalry. And now at God's direction after 20 years, it's, go, it's time to go home. I ask you again, what do the relationships in your life look like? Is there anybody that you're avoiding. Because I think there's some stuff we can learn from these guys this week and next week as well. And first of all, there's a real difference between healthy competition, which is kind of, in a certain sense, what they're set up for, if they would look that way, a, a healthy difference between healthy competition and a heated, fractured rivalry. There's absolutely nothing wrong biblically with both of these guys getting ahead. In fact, we are encouraged in scripture to do just that. But the way they went about it, we're going to discover, and we've been discovering, is that at points they would do it quite right, and at points they would do it quite wrong. In healthy competition, as I would understand it, I want to win. I want to excel. But it's okay in healthy competition for my competitor to do well as well. In fact, I'm kind of happy for them when they do well. And if I lose, I'm disappointed, but I can be happy for the winner. That's what, hap- that's what healthy competition looks like. In a heated, fractured rivalry, I have to win. And perhaps even more important than me winning is you losing. I enjoy it when you lose. And I want to be sure that you know that you lost to me. In the German language, there's a word for this, and my German is extremely limited, but there's a word in the German language that expresses this. It's called schadenfreude. And what it means is it means I take intense pleasure from your personal misfortune. I take pleasure when things go bad for you. In healthy competition, I give my absolute best. I work as hard as I can. I don't back off for a moment, but I do it within the healthy boundaries and rules that have been set up. And not just that, I even acknowledge the spirit of the rules as well. I do it with fairness. I do it with integrity. I do it in a way that honors Jesus. In a heated, fractured rivalry, I do whatever I have to to win. And all that matters is that I win and that you lose. And how we got there is what losers think about. And when we read the Bible stories that we've been reading, we see that that approach of the heated rivalry, oh, it just worked out really well for them. I'm being sarcastic there in case you were wondering. And this story is such an obvious illustration of some things that were right and 
some things that really weren't. But let me share a couple more. Years ago, I was in Calgary, and I was having lunch with Lane Smith. Lane went to our church there. Lane was the manager of what was then called Blessings Christian Marketplace, a large bookstore in the northeast part of Calgary, and they had a second location up in Edmonton. And at that time, in our family of Alliance churches here in Alberta, we had a large bookstore in Calgary as well. And that bookstore was doing incredibly well, so well that they decided to open a second location in Calgary. And so I'm sitting there, and this was just about to happen. So I said to Lane, "Um, does it bother you that we're opening a second bookstore on the south end of the city here in Calgary? And that might cut into your business, be head-on competition for sure. And I can't quote him, but I remember what he said, basically. And he was sitting, I was sitting here, and Randy was sitting there, and he was sitting right here. And here's what he said to me. He goes, I think it's wonderful that they're opening a second store. I think there's lots of room in the market for this, and that because of this, because of their expansion, I think things will open up for all of us, for all three stores here in in Calgary, even more, and we're all going to do better as a result, and I just wish them God's best in every way. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, wow, that sounds incredibly like a follower of Jesus talking. This is the heart and the attitude of a follower of Christ. If if he had the demeanor of the heated, fractured rivalry, he might have said something like this, well, I really hope that that second store fails. And I hope it drags down the main store so much so that they bleed customers and we're able to scoop them up and do way better ourselves. Let me give you another example of a heated rivalry, like really intense. Some time ago, I got this new cell phone, and I didn't know how to work the thing at all, of course. And so my son, Sean, grabs it, and of course, without even a thought of looking at a manual or anything like that, just starts working on it, setting it up for me. And he says, Dad, here's how you do this, and here's how you do that. And I'm sort of shuffled off to the side while he's doing this. And after a while, there was one thing he couldn't do. And he tried for like 10 minutes to get it to work. And finally, he kind of set it down, and I grabbed it. And I thought, I'm going to try. And so I worked away at it, and eventually I was able to get it to work. I jumped up in front of him, and I said, I win, I win, you lose in your face. And it was such a glorious moment, because I get, I get very few victories in life. Healthy competition versus heated rivalry. Well, Jacob clearly gets the word from God that it's time to go, talks to his wife, 
his wives, and he reminds them of how dear old dad has consistently cheated them over the years. And here's their response in chapter 31, beginning in verse 14. Then Rachel and Leah replied, do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what he was paid for us. Surely all the wealth God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. So do whatever God has told you. Well, Jacob obeys God. He does it in a slightly less, what I would call less than noble way. Verse 19, when Laban had gone to shear his sheep, so he's off somewhere in the back 40 shearing his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban the Aramea by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all that he had and crossing the rivers, he, the river, he headed for the hill country of Gilead. So rather than trusting God, because remember God said, you go ahead and go, it's time for you to go and I will be with you, which is the constant promise all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham, reiterated many times over, reaffirmed, um, uh, uh, expanded upon in a certain sense, and then again with Isaac, and then again with Jacob, and here's God saying it again, I will be with you, you can trust me, I've got your back, my promises will be fulfilled. So rather than trusting God to take care of things with Laban, like God said he would, he sneaks off. And when Laban gets home, uh, now let's be honest, he has really not been the pillar of a mature follower of God in any sense. But understandably, I think, he is upset when he finds that his daughters and all his grandkids have just left in the night and not bothered to say goodbye. And so he gathers up his forces and he chases after Jacob. And you can read about that in verses 22 through 44. And they finally, he catches up to them. And for the first time, they begin to talk. Which is what we don't do when we're avoiding the people that we've had an issue with, right? Which sadly in the Christian church, we often do. We scurry away to another church because we can't get along with Mr. X or Mrs. Y. And so off they go. And they get together and they have it out. And Laban says, first of all, well, I could harm you. In other words, I have the capacity to harm you, Jacob, but I won't because God told me not to. And it's a good thing that they're finally starting to talk. It's a great first step. They spend a lot of time as you read the dialogue defending each other, but in their favor, at least they're trying. Finally, Jacob says, yeah, I did all that. I'm leaving, and here is why I'm leaving. He finally explains it. And part of the reason, to be honest with you, father-in-law, is because you've been ripping me off consistently over the years. And so there's a moment of honesty between them. And they begin to attempt to explore what healing would look like. And they're trying to listen, at least in rudimentary fashions, trying to listen to God and follow his direction. And the thing that's constant 
in all of this that I keep bringing you back to over and over again because we forget this so quickly is the goodness of God. Verse 42, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would, this is Jacob speaking, you would surely have sent me away empty handed, but God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands and last night he rebuked you. The one constant good one in all of this is the one who cares for the downtrodden, the God of the Bible, the one who disciplines us because he loves us when we need it, the one who often blesses, we've seen this so often in the story, the one who blesses and shows mercy when we don't deserve it, the one whose plan and whose purpose goes through no matter what. And they come to the place of a sort of, I would call it an uneasy truce. Verse 44. Come now, they say to each other, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. And for them, this is a huge deal, okay? Like a big deal to do this. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap and they ate together by the heap. Down to verse 49. May the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from one another. May you, if you mistreat my daughters, if you take any more wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. Laban also said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father, Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. And after they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then they left and returned home. So they enter into a covenant agreement together. They've been talking. They've been trying to listen to and follow God's direction. And before God, they established this covenant. They set up this rock and put stones together to do this. This is a very visible symbol for them so that if they ever see it, it reminds them of this covenant they made before God, which is a holy thing to them. They establish through the covenant geographic and relational boundaries. They talk through what that's going to look like. They eat together. They say proper goodbyes. They bless one another. They probably don't feel like it, but they say good things about each other, which is another wonderful truth that you see in Matthew chapter 5. Bless those that curse you and hate you, in fact it says. And more than likely, they're never going to be the best of friends, but at least mature enough to work out a basis of understanding and start to follow God's direction in their lives. What are the relationships like 
in our life? Am I avoiding anyone? Is there any schadenfreude going on? A heated rivalry says, I have to win, you have to lose in a way that I can shame you, maybe crush you a little bit. I might even really like it if it kind of destroyed you. That would be even better. And I will do whatever I have to to put you into that position. Or is it more of a healthy competition? You do your best. You try your hardest. You use your efforts. In fact, the efforts of your competition, you almost commend them for them because they inspire you to greater heights. And there's nothing wrong with winning, but you care about the other person as you do. And you actually want what's good for them. You want Christ to be glorified in all this. So you play by the rules, you play with fairness, you play with integrity, and Jesus is exalted. Learn from Jacob what the outcome will be. The straightforward way that God wants for each one of us, or the crooked way, which will be decidedly unpleasant, and God will not be honored. We'll invite our worship team to come as I ask you once again, what am I passing on?